0: 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We left off last time at verse 17, and uh, tonight we'll, I think, probably finish the chapter. But remember that Paul has started writing this letter to the Corinthian church because of the information that came from the household of Chloe with questions about certain things that they needed to have Paul address. And a lot of that, which they had to address, had to deal with divisions in the church. It had to do with one case of incest, incest in the church, another with court cases between members. They had all of these questions uh, that Paul needed to address, and he has begun to do that. Uh, in the first portion of chapter 1, he did address the issue of divisiveness in the church, sectarianism, he referred to it as a an evil that needed to be dealt with. And, of course, a lot of people are concerned about the fact that we are filled throughout the world with various denominations. And I suggested uh, last time that, for the most part, denominations aren't in and of themselves bad. They do serve a purpose in the church because various people in the body have various styles of worship that they prefer, various uh, things that they like to see in the church service that might not be available in one denomination but not in another. So there are needs that are being met by denominationalism. However, when a denomination becomes exclusive is when we have an issue. Uh, if they start saying everybody else is wrong and we're the only ones that are right, then that is sectarianism, and it is an evil that needs to be addressed. So Paul did address that in that first portion of chapter 1, and in verse 17, he ended that discussion about sectarianism with these words, uh, talking about baptism, because he had just mentioned that he had only baptized a few people, and he ends with, saying these things in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And as Paul's recording these words, it seems though that Paul is now being able to add to some of the thoughts that he was already presenting and changing gears a little bit by discussing what he just spoke in verse 17, and there are two things that he spoke about in verse 17, which is going to cover the remainder of chapter 1. The first is the subject of wisdom, and the second is preaching the gospel. And he said again, I was sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no Effect. So the cross of Christ is central to the preaching of the gospel. Now, the gospel, according to Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, emphasizes three basic thoughts that Christ lived as a man, and he died and was raised again. And those three thoughts are central thoughts, and put together, they are all of what the gospel is uh, for the believer. Christ living uh, living among us, dying for us, and being resurrected and promising that we too will be resurrected as well. Now, the Corinthians were very steeped in Greek philosophy, and that's where the wisdom issue comes into play. And Paul knew that they were very much involved with Uh, The idea of the philosopher being somebody who is exalted among all of the other people that they could ever associate with. If they could get together and listen to somebody who had some new philosophical thought, then they would listen intently to him, whether he had any content or not really didn't matter. It was the delivery of the philosopher that was so very important in the Greek mind of that day. So Paul's going to be addressing those two things, the cross and the centrality of the cross to the teaching or the preaching of the gospel, and the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. So in verse 18 he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing." Those who are outside the faith, in other words. But to us who are believers, who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God. The message is the power. And to the people who are outside of faith, it is foolishness. Now, that is going to be elaborated on again in a few moments, but I want to make sure that we understand that what Paul is saying is that when we preach Christ... It must include the power of the cross to effectively accomplish that which God had intended through Christ's death on that instrument of death. Now, you know that there are many people in the world today, whether they are Christian or not, they probably aren't, but one of the things that is very common is the jewelry that people tend to wear that happens to be religious jewelry, like one of the uh, most popular pictures of some of the uh, artists in the music industry. You'll find them wearing crosses. Whether they're believers or not, and I'm pretty sure people like Madonna from their lifestyle are probably not or have not been, but they wear those ornaments as though it's just a symbol of nothing more than a way of expressing your love for jewelry that 's all it is to them for the message of the cross, so oh, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice that he's saying to us who are being saved that's a present, tense form of salvation now. When you go through the Word of God in the New Testament, salvation is expressed in the past tense. You are, have been saved, and you are being saved as it is recorded here, and you will be saved elsewhere in the scripture it is mentioned as well. So there's a process of salvation. And I like the way some have put it, that when in the past tense it refers to you have been saved from The power of sin. You are being saved, or rather you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin and you will be saved from the presence of sin. I think all three of those are very accurate understandings of what Paul and the other gospel writers are conveying when they convey this idea of salvation in the various tenses of past, present, and future. But here he's saying, for us who are being saved... The message of the cross is the power of God. Let us keep in mind that there is power in the cross of Christ. Remember, Paul tells us elsewhere that on the cross, it was by the cross, that the cross put Satan to an open shame. And so that is the power that is manifest in the thing that Christ accomplished on that cross. Of course, the cross is an instrument of death. I suppose in today's vernacular, if it had been written uh, with regard to a savior who would have come today and was condemned to death, he probably would have been condemned to death by execution in a, an electric chair or by chemical injection uh, you know, or some other means. But that's the idea of the cross. It's, it's a, not a symbol of beauty, of jewelry. It's a symbol of death. And there's power in that symbol. And Paul is emphasizing that because he goes on in verse 19, that says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent or clever, in some of your translations. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now, again, the Corinthians, being a Greek culture in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, considered the Greek philosophers to be filled with wisdom, and Paul is now addressing that. He's saying the wisdom of the wise will be destroyed because that wisdom is contrary to the wisdom of God. And he explains in the next several verses. In verse 20 he says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world In other words, there were those who would go around from town to town and speaking to large crowds and receiving pay from the people who listened to them if they were any good at their oratory skills, but they were considered to be wise in their ability to debate others on issues. They were considered to be uh, those who were prolific writers. They were considered to be men and women who were very, very highly esteemed when they were able to convey whatever they were trying to convey in a way that was causing the people to go, wow, listen to this guy speak. Well, that's the wisdom of the world, and Paul is addressing that again and saying that it is foolishness as far as God is concerned. God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Verse 21 says, "...for since..." In the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Again, Paul is pronouncing this simple truth the wisdom of God is by far superior to the wisdom of the world, and the world through wisdom did not know God. Remember, it was in the city of Athens that Paul saw the statue that was made to the God who is the unknown God. He revealed that God to the Athenians, but most of them did not pay any attention to it because they trusted in their own wisdom and they considered the wisdom of what Paul was speaking to be foolishness because it didn't make any sense. Why would anybody, apparently they thought, consider worshiping somebody who has died? It made no sense to them. It was foolishness. But he goes on to say, in verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. They would argue, give me the best philosopher and I'll listen to him all day long. But the Jews, on the other hand, wanted to see signs. They only would believe if they saw with their eyes something that would convince them of a miraculous supernatural event that God was in this that was being spoken. So, remember when Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees, they asked him for a sign. And he said, No sign will be given this evil and adulterous generation except the sign of Jonas. For as Jonas or Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And that's the sign, the only sign, that Jesus said he would give. Now, they were looking for a sign like what Moses gave when he called down manna from heaven. They were looking for bread from heaven, another powerful demonstration that God is indeed with this one who is proclaiming himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. But he wouldn't give that to them. That was not going to be something that they would receive. It was for the Jews... The only way that they would accept that Jesus is the Messiah, if he would show them a sign. For the Gentiles, the the Greeks, the only way that they would accept is if he would present to them some worldly wisdom that they could grab onto and accept as being valid in their eyes. It was foolish to think that a dead man could convey anything, and they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not accept the idea of somebody being raised from the dead. It was beyond their ability to reason. And Jesus did, indeed, raise from the dead. And that's the central aspect of our faith. Paul will tell us later in this letter of 1 Corinthians that if Christ be not raised, then we are of all men most to be pitied. He's going to argue with the Corinthian church that even though there were some who still thought that the resurrection could not have possibly happened, Paul is going to take a great deal of time and focus on the resurrection of not only Christ but of the church as well. And we will get to that in chapter 15, should the Lord tarry. But here he's talking about the foolishness of the idea, as far as the Greeks were concerned, that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world, the one who could come and die on a cross to deliver us from our sins. The Greeks were not ready, for the most part, to accept that. The Jews, on the other hand, were not willing to accept it either because their version of the Messiah, their understanding of the Messiah, excluded this aspect of Jesus coming as a man and dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. They did not see all of that in the scriptures, although it all was there, they thought instead that our Messiah is going to deliver us from the bondage that we are under with this Roman government and as soon as that takes place, as soon as that Messiah that we are expecting sits on David's throne, then we will believe. So they were looking for a sign. They never received a sign and they never received salvation as a result of that. So Paul continues to say we preach Christ crucified. Verse 23, we make no excuses. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But, verse 24 says, to those who are called, remember he spoke to the Corinthian church in his introduction, to the called of God. And he's saying, to those of us who are called, that's you and I, we are called by God. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it doesn't make any difference if you were a Jew and believed in Jesus Christ and the death, burial and resurrection and forgiveness of sins, you are called of God and you are no longer just a Jew, you are a child of God. And your Jewishness does not interfere with your Christ-likeness. And same way with the Greeks, if you were a Gentile, a Greek in this translation, because you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and asked for forgiveness of your sins and recognized that He was indeed the One who came, died, and was buried and rose again, then your belief in that power of God to raise Him up from the dead to prove His acceptance of the work that Christ had done on the cross, then... You are saved, and it, though it was a stumbling block before, it is no longer a stumbling block to us who are now believers. It wasn't; it isn't any longer foolishness to us who are believers. It is truth that we hold on to and and ex- accept with great joy. Power of God and the wisdom of God are manifest through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is telling us here. Verse 25 says, continuing, "...because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men." Now, that's kind of a a rhetorical statement that he's making. God is not foolish, but he's saying, even if you would compare men to God, the, the least amount of wisdom that God might manifest is far greater than the wisdom that man can manifest. And the weakness in terms of power, that the least amount of power that God would manifest, is far greater than any power that man can produce. So, these things Paul is saying to make sure the Corinthian church understands that the message of the cross is again central to this whole concept of salvation that is being offered to both Jews and Gentiles. Continuing on in verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the to shame, which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are." So these three verses talk a great deal, really, about the way that many people think it ought to be. If you're going to have a religion, that people are going to follow, they would argue. You've got to have men and or women who are wise in their understanding of things. Men and women who are noble. Men and women who are mighty. Men in particular, strong and valorous and, and uh, able to defend the weaker. He, he's saying here, but God has chosen. He mentions this three times. God has chosen the foolish things, to confound the wise. Isn't that wonderful? I'm glad. Several years ago, about 25 years ago in fact, my mother was sitting across the table from my oldest son, Jason, and my mother asked him a question. Jason, are you as smart as your father is? Now, I was told that later after the fact. I didn't hear it, so I can only believe that it was as it was conveyed to me. And it seems to me that my mom thought I was pretty smart, apparently. She wanted to know if my son Jason was as smart as I am. Jason's answer was remarkable. Jason said, yeah, I'm smarter than he is, but I'm not as wise. Well, that was 25 years ago. And it may have been partly true that I had greater wisdom then than he did at that time. But I don't think it's the case now. Wisdom comes when you request it. Wisdom in the Word of God over and over and over again, especially in the Psalms, is a condition, a character that the Word of God completely encourages always for the individual to seek after It's not something that is hidden from the believer. If you are a called of God child, if you are born again, if you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you are a new creation in Christ, if you are an overcomer, if you are more than a conqueror, if you are a son or daughter of the Most High God, you can ask for wisdom. Remember when Solomon took the throne. He asked God, for understanding and wisdom. and God said, because you have asked for this instead of riches, I will give you that which you have asked and riches also. Well, we have great riches in Christ Jesus, great blessings that are ours, an inheritance that is unbelievable, that is ours and will be shown to us in that day, and we will see the wonderful goodness of our God who has bestowed upon us great gifts, abundant life and everything that we could ever imagine or more is ours because we are His. Sons and daughters adopted into the family, and that's a great promise. But we can get wisdom now, in the present. We can ask for it, and He gives it abundantly. The wisdom that God wants to give is not worldly wisdom. I often like to refer to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when I discuss the worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. And it's also true that in that section he talks about repentance, worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. And the idea is that worldly sorrow cannot lead one to repentance, godly sorrow does. And in the same vein, worldly wisdom cannot lead us to truth, but godly wisdom does. And we want to seek truth. And in order to receive truth, we have to read His Word. Jesus said in His prayer that He prayed in John chapter 17, praying to His Father, He said, Lord God, let Your Word sanctify them. Your Word is truth. So the Word of truth has a sanctifying means by which God can manifest His truth in our hearts, in our lives. David had written, Thy word, O Lord, I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's wisdom. David told Solomon to seek wisdom, and Solomon did indeed seek wisdom. David sought the wisdom of God. He spoke wonderfully about wisdom in both psalms and and some of the other things that we have recorded in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings that David had spoke with regard to wisdom. David knew that God willingly gives wisdom to all who would ask of it, but it's never to be confused with worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom excludes God. Worldly wisdom tries to define things from the knowledge that we do have in a way that excludes a creator, and you know that that worldly, religious wisdom is, in the end, going to fail miserably. I was reading an article just the other day about the uh, James Webb Telescope that has been um, sending some very, very amazing pictures of the most distant galaxies that we have ever, ever seen and typically have not been able to see until now because this telescope is so far better than anything that we have ever put out there. It orbits the sun around a million miles from Earth, and it sends these beautiful pictures with the various techniques that they have developed over the last several years of being able to, use infrared cameras and all kinds of other technologies that allow them to see further and further into the unknown, and they have been able to observe some of the earliest light that has ever, ever penetrated our eyes. There were two uh, scientists that I read in this article that I mentioned discussing this phenomenon of the, the power of the James Webb and They got into a discussion of what we do know as a result of the various things like James Webb telescope that we've been able to develop over the years. One scientist asked the question, how much do you think we really do know of what can be known? And the other scientist said, I'm convinced that we probably only know 5% of what can be known. And the other 95% of what can be known might be revealed to us over time, but for now we have to just trust that there is a way to find out, and eventually mankind might. I would submit to you that we will never find all of what God has done. He has revealed a very small portion of all that He has done and all that He will do. But what He has revealed has been revealed in His Word. And His Word tells us all that we need to know about God to understand that what the scientists cannot see, God is very much aware of. In fact, the scientists that I mentioned were talking about the fact that they just didn't understand what was holding it all together still? They know about dark matter, they assume things about dark energy, but they also know that every five years or so, their understanding changes based on new information. And they're still scratching their heads as to what is the ultimate cause of the universe existing and what is holding it all together. You know, whether you've heard of the gluon as a, Particle that they believe must exist, although they've never been able to see it, because that gluon would be necessary to have an offsetting power to hold the electrons and the protons or, together without, you know, separating apart. The Word of God is simple. And it tells us, in simplicity, Jesus holds it all together by the power or the Word of His power. Jesus holds it together. And Peter tells us that there's coming a day when he's going to release all that energy. And the heavens will be burnt like a, uh, in fervent heat and rolled up like a scroll, John tells us in the book of Revelation. That's the wisdom of God. He knows all things and he has the wisdom to do all of those things that he has promised and show everyone who would believe in him all that we need to know to trust in him for tomorrow. We know the past. We know what is present before us now. We cannot know the future. But, we know who holds the future. And that should be sufficient for all of us. That's where godly wisdom comes in. Trusting in God's promises. In spite of the fact that we don't have all the answers. So he says, Again in verse 26, not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Which one of those do you fall into? If you were to list yourself among those that he has described here. Are you among the wise or are you among the foolish that confound the wise? Are you among the chosen? Yes, I hope you are. God has chosen you. You are one of those who is weak. Are you among the weak or are you one of the mighty? Now he doesn't exclude those descriptors as being within the church. In addition to the weak and the foolish and the base, there are very wise men who have believed, and women, in the Word of God and have been very, very amazing ministers of the Gospel. Paul himself was one who did that, and he was considered to be one of the most wise of all the Pharisees in his day. In fact, he was a student of Gamaliel who was one of the most highly respected rabbis. And it said, in I think Josephus records this about Paul, that he was so amazingly brilliant and was so wanting to learn that Gamaliel couldn't keep him in books. He couldn't provide enough books for Paul because he devoured them. Paul's desire to know more as a Pharisee was driving him in those early days of his life. Unfortunately, he was against those who were naming the name of Christ, and he was the enemy of the cross for a season until Jesus met with him on the road to Damascus. But Paul was a very intelligent and very wise individual, and God used that wisdom to bring into the church a man who could write so prolifically, and so wonderfully able to argue the truth of God's Word before Gentiles and Jews alike. We needed men like, and still do, need men like Paul. But he uses men like you and me, and women like you and me. He uses the weak. He uses the basings of the world. He uses those things. He prefers that, and that's why we're all here. None of us, I don't believe, would be considered to be among those highly esteemed. In fact, the Bible tells us simply this. We should never allow ourselves to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We need to be humble. We need to be willing to allow others to be above us in authority if that is what God would call us to do. But we also need to know that all of us are one in Christ, male or female, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor. It doesn't make any difference. We are all one in Christ. And we have God's wisdom available to us, every one of us. So if we're weak, he makes us strong. If we lack wisdom, he gives us wisdom. If we are abased, he provides provision for us. Everything that is mentioned in these passages that we've looked at in verses 26-28 are simply ways of Paul saying, look, the church is made up of very unlikely people, and because of what God has chosen unlikely people to do, He has made it so that unlikely people can do amazing things for God's glory. And that's what Paul is saying here in these passages. The world wisdom would never, ever think that this kind of an organism could exist with so few of those who were worldly wise, worldly mighty, worldly powerful individuals. But God knew better. Finally, in verse 29, he says all of those things in verses 26 through 28, so that no flesh could glory in the presence of God. That's the reason. He doesn't want people who are thinking themselves to be wise, because if they do, God doesn't get the glory. God gets the glory only if those who think themselves wise are willing to lay aside all that they thought about themselves and humble themselves before a much wiser God and consider themselves to be lowly in the presence of God. That is how God operates. No flesh can glory in God's presence. And then in verse 30 he says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Paul says in Galatians this, I should not glory in anything save in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no room for boasting in anybody who is a follower of Christ. I can boast in nothing save in boasting in Christ Jesus, my Lord. The cross before us, the world behind us. I've decided to follow Him. And in following Him, I know that He provides all the wisdom I need. I know that He provides all the strength I need. Not my own strength. I am weak. But when I am weak, He is strong. I know that I can be satisfied in the fact that my God provides all my needs according to His riches in glory. The wisdom of the world can never, ever come close to this. And that's what God wants us to remember as we move forward. The cross is where it began. Without the message of the cross, we would have nothing to stand on. But because of the cross, because of the power that God manifest not only in the death of Christ, but in the raising up of Christ on the third day. Those are the things, the gospel message, that allows us to continue faithfully serving the risen Savior and knowing without doubt, knowing without fear, knowing without ever, ever turning back that we're on the right track. Because His righteousness, has been given to us by the power of His Holy Spirit. It's not yours, it's His. He imputed His righteousness into our hearts and lives. And the sanctification that we are experiencing, again, sanctification is a process. Much like what we said about salvation earlier, sanctification also is that same basic idea of a process in our lives as we continue to serve our Lord. We started out being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit and we are being sanctified as we move forward in faith, progressing toward that day when we will be totally sanctified and glorified and redeemed because that redemption is the final aspect of who we are in Christ and it will be in that day when Christ returns that that redemption that has been promised will be at its full and we will be able then to know as we have been known, to see with our eyes that which we can only see dimly as in a mirror through the study of His Word. But in the study of His Word, we can indeed know that our God provides all that we need in every aspect of our lives to continue serving Him. It is His Spirit who enables us, who teaches us, who guides us, who comforts us. It is His Spirit who draws all men to Himself. It is His Spirit who convicts men of right sin and righteousness and judgment. It is His Spirit that completely gives a seal of God in our lives to know that we are His. And He will keep us. He holds us in the palm of His hand. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That's the promise of a loving God. That's the promise of a gracious God. That's the promise of a God who chooses to reach out to any who will listen, to any who will open their eyes, to any who will soften their hearts to this truth. And the wisdom, the power that is ours, is awesome to me. I hope it is to you as well. Well, that ends our study in chapter 1. Paul's going to continue talking about some of this in the second chapter, and then he's going to move on to some of the very unfortunate things that are happening within the church at Corinth. Keep in mind that Corinth was kind of what you would call a carnal church. In other words, they really didn't have a lot of good things going for them. Just like some of the churches that Jesus addressed in letters in the book of Revelation, Corinth had its issues but they also had its strengths. They also had some very, very good people who were faithful men and women in that church. And the church was going to continue for as long as God would allow it, if they would continue in that faith that God had poured out by His Spirit among them. And so it is with us. We also must realize that we must rely on the Spirit of God daily. And I pray for revival in the church, that the Spirit of God would move among us in a way that would glorify God through us as we shine the light brightly in this dark world in which we live. May it be so, in Jesus' name, from now until the day that he returns for us. Amen. Grace and peace.